So the title of my message this morning is My Father's Business. And uh, it's, I took the title out of um, Luke 2, um, 41 through 50 is in there. And this is the, that setting where we find, you know, Mary and Joseph, they've, they've had to go to Jerusalem for, um, you know, to do some stuff at the temple. And now they're all kind of caravanning back, right? The families would go and they were caravanning back and. So they, they think Jesus is with some extended family somewhere, and they can't find him. And all of a sudden, so they start kind of looking around. And by the third day, they kind of start to panic when they realize Jesus isn't in the caravan. Right now, all of us parents know there comes a moment when, you know, like we call their name once or we call their name twice, and they don't respond. And then after a little while, there's, there's this, like, critical mass moment where they don't respond that panic begins to set in, Right? Um, we've had a couple kids decide to hide in the building once or twice and not call out that they were here, and we start to panic as we run around. Where did they go? Right? So this is where Mary and Joseph are at. They're panicked. They go back, and they're searching through Jerusalem, and they can't, you know, they can't find him, and all of a sudden, Joseph comes, and he brings Jesus back. And they had found him in the temple, listening to the teachers teaching and asking questions, and it says he's amazing the other teachers as he teaches or as he answers questions, and with his questions, just, this kid is so incredible. Well, they ask him, what are, what are you, how could you scare us like that? What are you doing? And he, his response is so beautiful. And he says, didn't you know that I would be in my father's house, right? That's his, um, his answer was literally in verse 49. He says, but why did you need to search didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? Now, if you were to read that in the New King James version of the Bible, it would say, didn't you know that I would be about my father's business, right? Now, the, the newer translations that have changed it to say in my father's house, they all have that nice, wonderful little, you know, A kind of parenthesis thing behind it that if you have like an electronic Bible, you can click and it brings it up. If you have, you know, the good old fashioned hard copy kind, you have to scroll down to the bottom and see what it says. And it says there, or about my father's business, right? Or the new living about my father's affairs, right? And so for years, people would ask me, you know, Josh, do you have a life verse? Like, what's a life verse that kind of that meshes with who you are? And I was like, I don't, I don't know. Like, I mean, I know it's a thing that people do. Sometimes they have it. I was like, I don't know. And the more I began to think about that and kind of pray on that, like, this is just what came up for me. Didn't you know that I would be about my father's business? Like, if I have a goal for my life, if I have a design for my life, it's to be about my father's business, to be about what he would call me to do, to be about what he would ask me to do. Because see, for Jesus in this moment, there's no question in his mind that that's what he's supposed to be doing, right? It, it doesn't, why were you searching? Didn't you know this is what I would be doing? Like, you know, I would be about what God wants me to do, what my father wants me to do. And we have the beautiful, beautiful thing in our lives to be children of God, right? That God called us through, through faith in his son, through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Those the Bible say that anyone who believes in their heart and confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, right? And in doing that, we get to be adopted sons and daughters of God. The Bible in Ephesians verse 1, 4 through 6 says, Even before he made the world, God loved us 
and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. And this is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he poured out on us who belong to his dear son. Isn't that powerful? Just, he adopted us. And this is something that, for me, has gained more, I've gained more understanding of this in the last few months. If you guys know my family at all, you know my oldest is my adopted son. Um, and his adoption was finalized this year. Um, but what does it say? It said that God, even before he made the world, had the plan to adopt us. Right? And so a lot of people said, oh, you know, it, this is going to change a lot. You guys, it's going to change. And I tell people, I'm like, the thing that his adoption in my mind changed was that legally now there was an obligation and he has my legal, he uses my last name legally now as opposed to just being able to use it. But it didn't change a whole lot else for us because from the day, really, I mean, even before we got married, but really from the moment that Jen and I got married, he was my son and I saw him no different. Right? That's the way God is with us. Before the world, he said, listen, before the world, I chose to adopt you. Even though maybe it didn't go, your adoption into God's family didn't come into effect until you were in your 20s or your teens or whenever you made that commitment to Jesus, I place my faith in you, right? You are the Lord of my life. I repent of my sins, God. I'm turning control of my life over to you. And that's your moment, that's your, your gotcha day, as they call it in the adoption world, right? You got a gotcha day. That may have been that moment, but see, God's love for you started way before then, right? It says before the foundation of the world, he had that in there. And now, because of that wonderful thing, because of Jesus, because of what Jesus did on the cross, we get to be sons and daughters of God, and we get to do that. But here's the thing, and here's the problem with a lot of like what we would call like the hyper-grace move and everything, is they say, that's great, Jesus' blood covered everything, there you go, live your life. And that's not how this thing called salvation works, Right? We turn control over of our, of our lives over to God, right? And we're essentially now in the family business, right? So if you're sitting here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus, you're in the family business. And what's God's business? Redemption and reconciliation, right? That's what we're about. That's what we're called to be. That's who we're called to be. It's people who are about reconciliation and redemption. About helping a world find Jesus. A few more verses surrounding this idea. We see, see how, this is John, 1 John 3, 1 says, See how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children, and that is what we are. But we are people who... But the people who belong to this world don't recognize that we are God's children because they don't know him. Romans 8, 14 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. And Galatians 3, 26 says, For you are all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And this is so beautiful. Because along with being a part of the family business, we, all get, we also get the privileges of being children of God, Right? How many of you know, being in families, it comes with privileges, right? 
You get the privileges of your family name. You get the privileges of those things. For me, growing up, my family owned a printing company. I didn't have to go looking for summer jobs. I had one, right? I got to go work for my family. It was a privilege of that. On holidays and things like that, I have the privilege because of my family of getting to go be surrounded by a large group of people. You know, Easter Sunday, we went to my cousin's house, and there's a huge egg hunt for my kids. My aunt stuffs like 200 and some eggs, like 280 some eggs by herself to do that. It's a privilege of the last name that I carry of getting to do this. In the same way, the privilege that you have now because you are children of God, you carry his name. You have privileges of being a part of his family but we also have duties and obligations, right? How many of you growing up didn't want to do your chores and your parents would tell you, you're a part of this family, you're going to do your part, right? Anybody ever have that conversation with mom and dad? Yeah? I have that conversation with my kids sometimes. We don't want to clean. Listen, your mom and I both work. You can help, right? And we do the same thing our parents did. Do you know how much more you have than we had as kids, right? <laughs> It's just generational, and the kids who are rolling their eyes right now, you're going to do it to your kids too, okay? You may think you can escape it. You can't. It's just part of life. But we are to be about the family business. We're to be about doing what God wants us to do. And what is it that he's called us to do? To be about reconciliation and redemption, both in the church and outside those doors. You were called, commissioned, to be people who reach the world for Jesus. You know, we hear statistics oftentimes like, you know, the Pacific Northwest is one of the darkest regions in the country. It's one of the most unchurched regions in the country. It's, you know, it has, we have all these standards and statistics and we're like, oh, this is so horrible. How could this happen? Why is all this stuff happening in our culture here in the Pacific Northwest and all these terrible things are happening? And I'm like, yeah, the real question we should be asking is where's the church been for the last 20, 30 years? Have we, been, have we been about our father's business? Because if we were really about our father's business, maybe the world wouldn't look the way it does now, right? But sometimes we get so caught up with punching the clock in Christianity and not really working hard, not really doing what we're supposed to do. Well, I checked the boxes, you know, I came to church and I was there on Wednesday night and, you know, and I do all that kind of stuff and I... Oh, well, how do you share your faith? Well, when my church posts a thing on Facebook about an event, I share it to my page, you know, so my friends can see it. So I kind of told them, oh, oh, by the way, sometimes I post a picture of a Bible verse that I really like. That's good, right? That's sharing Jesus with people. It's like the most passive aggressive way to share the gospel ever because you don't actually ever have to face rejection. Nobody has to tell you they think you're nuts. You can just throw it up there. And the worst somebody's going to do is drop a comment on it that you can delete. But hey, I'm sharing the gospel. No, you're just, you might as well graffiti it on the side of a building. It's all you're doing. People can ignore that and scroll past it just as easy as anything else. You know what's hard to ignore? A one-on-one -on -one conversation. When you're talking with somebody and the conversation begins to take a swing towards that and you take the opportunity to talk about it. I got to do that just this week with one of my clients. 
I've mentioned that I'm a pastor several times, and I mean, not even a peep out of them about it, right? And I'm like, okay, well, maybe they just don't want to have that conversation. I'm not going to push. Let's just see. But just this last week, we had to meet and uh, go over some stuff, and our conversation took a swing towards church and towards God and towards the things of him, and we were able to have a conversation about that. And what do we do in those moments? Do we think, here's my chance to go to work? I'm going to go to work, right? I'm going to be about my father's business. I'm going I'm to take the opportunity that's been given to me now to share Jesus and to put things out there. I mean, in the whole process of this conversation, I'm like, okay, how am I going to lay out what, what the gospel really says, right? How am I going to lay out what Jesus really says in a way now that doesn't look like I'm just, hey, like, pushing everything on you, like I'm going to beat this down your throat because you're going to get it. Not that, but how can I do this? And thankfully, they, they were somebody who knew what God's word said. So I was able to say, you know, we were able to talk about some stuff, and I'm like, well, you know, my issue is some people don't like to talk about this way. And I'm like, and this is what God's word said. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And he's like, you're absolutely right. So when I talk about, hey, you know what? We need to be out and we need to be doing this kind of stuff. I'm not saying you have to just, like, run out there and hold your street sign or, you know, walk into a coffee shop, sit down with a bunch of people that don't know, and go, hey, can I tell you about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Like, um, that's not what I'm trying to tell you to do. I'm not trying to tell you to be a creepy Christian. Right? Don't need to go door to door with your name tag on and, you know, <laughs> try to talk to people about Jesus. But listen, if those people come to your front door, don't you dare make up an excuse for why they can't talk to you. Because here's the thing it drives my family nuts because they keep coming back to our house. But this is why every time they come, hey, can we talk to you? Sure, let's talk. We're talking about going into all the world. The world's coming to me when that happens. Yeah. Let's have a conversation. Do you know what this? Do you know? You know? Do you know what the Book of Mormon says? I do. Well, can we talk to you about it? Let's talk. <laughs> sure. Why don't you? Do you agree with it? Nope. Why? Because it doesn't line up with God's word. Well, what parts? Okay. Here we go. It says in there, I'm saved by Christ. You know, by the blood of Christ. After all that I can do. Right. Well, that's not an agreement with the Bible. Right? The Bible says that my righteousness is filthy rags. The Bible says there's nothing I can do to work. There's no amount of work. There's nothing I can do to try and, like, chisel off of this sin thing that I have. Right? The best way I can describe their perspective is it's like sitting down to dinner and going out to eat somewhere, and all of a sudden the bill comes, and you realize there's not enough in your account to cover the whole bill, but you can still kind of cover it. Right? And Jesus goes, no, I got the rest, don't worry. I'm like, that's not how it works. The way this works is the whole bill comes, there's not enough, you have nothing in your account, and Jesus says, don't worry, I got it. Right? He paid the whole bill, not just the part you weren't able to pay. So you want a good way to talk to him? Have that conversation right there. Witnessing to a Mormon, 101. But you better know what God's word says too before you do it, because I promise you, they know their book. So you better know yours. So what is looking like being in our father's business? What does that look like? I mean, what does that really look like? It's really simple. It looks like listening and obeying what God says. 
I'm going to tell you, one of those is easier than the other one. Right? Listening, actually pretty easy. Obeying, a lot harder. Again, parents, you understand this. You tell your kids to do something, you know they heard you. Now, they may act like they didn't hear you. Anyone in church ever act like they didn't hear God tell them to do something? Okay, anyway, all right, yep, okay, thank you. One brave person raised their hand. But we've done it, right? And here's my favorite question. People always come and they want to talk. How do I know if it's really God? I'm like, sometimes I just want to look at people and go, you know you just don't want to do it. Now, I understand sometimes you really do have questions, is it really God? And we have conversations with people. But I think a lot of times people ask, well, I want to know if it's really God because they want to know if they really have to do it or not. Because listening to what he says is one thing. Obeying what he says is something else. Wouldn't be a good passage our sermon without using my wife as an example prior to her knowledge. So here we go. This new position that we are going to take. When I first talked to Jennifer about it, Jennifer told me she didn't even want to hear anything about it. She said, I don't want to know. I don't want to go. We are where we are. This is where God wants us to be. I don't want to have any more conversations about this thing. And I said, listen, I'm not, I'm not asking you to be happy about it. I'm just asking you to listen to what God has to say. And God spoke to you through people and through some other things. And she will tell you that over the process of this, God worked on her heart. And when I finally was called to go and have lunch with uh, the lead pastor of the church that we'll be working at. When I called Jennifer and told her, hey, I talked with him, had a good conversation, we're going to set up a lunch appointment. I got home and she's like, I'm actually kind of excited about this idea. And I had to make sure she wasn't sick. <laughs> but that's one of the ways I knew it was God. I knew God was leading this thing. And credit to my wife. She did the hard thing. She listened and she obeyed. And the obeying part is hard, guys. It's hard when you hear the Spirit nudging you to go talk to someone. It's hard to step out and obey and to follow that and to go have a conversation. It's hard when it's somebody you know. It's hard when it's somebody that you don't know. These things are difficult, but we are called to listen to God and to obey what he says. And what does that look like in our lives? One of the first things it looks like is being in fellowship with other believers. Being around one another, right? Our Acts 2, Ephesians 4 prayer meetings, right? We're going to use those scriptures today. I'm gonna, we're just going to dive in to the abundant life mindset, right? Acts 2, starting in verse 42, says this, All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper. It means they didn't just eat together to take communion, but they did that too, right? Eat together. Spend time together. Enjoying one another's company and to prayer. And says a deep sense of awe came over them all. And the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And the believers met together in one place and they shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshipped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. All the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Notice here's something that's so cool. These people 
became a family unit, right? That's really, I mean, you could caption it that way. The church becomes a family, right? As they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, right? To the idea of we're going to learn what's coming from Scripture. We're going to do these things. They were selling their property and possessions, not because anyone commanded them to. This wasn't a requirement to be in the family, right? It was, I see there's this need here. These people need something. And if I sell this, I've got enough money to meet this need, so I'm going to go ahead and do that because I don't need it, right? It wasn't like they all became, you know, we had rich and we had poor, so we all became poor, so we'd all be together. That wasn't what they were doing. They were doing it so they could meet one another's needs. They weren't, like, making themselves poor. They were saying, I've got this extra thing over here that I don't need. Maybe it was something that cost them something. I don't know. But Scripture does talk about not giving to the point where it strains your financial standpoint to the point where you can't pay your own bills or something like that, where you can't live. So we know that's not what they were doing, but they were saying, listen, I don't need this. Maybe they were going to be going and traveling, right? Paul traveled all the time. So did Barnabas. Barnabas was one of the guys who sold a field that he had and came and brought it into the church so that they could meet needs. Well, Barnabas probably didn't need it anymore. He was going to be traveling on mission. Why do I need a house if I'm traveling, right? Let's just sell it and go. I'm not telling you to sell your house. Don't hear me say that. But they took care of one another. It's what we see there. They took care of people. They spent time praising God, enjoying the goodwill of all people. And the beautiful thing is, and the Lord added to their number each day those who were being saved. Now, the Lord adds them, yes, but those people, I guarantee you, were sharing what was going on, right? They were inviting people, I'm sure of it, to be a part of these meals and to be a part of these family experiences. I mean, like, you know, when they saw somebody who was destitute, who was poor, who was out, who was whatever, rich, whatever, whoever they were, you got to come be a part of this thing. You got to come be a part of this group of people. We genuinely love and care about one another. We love each other like a family. That's why God says, listen, they'll know you're my disciples by the way you love one another. Because you treat each other like family, because you care about one another. And you don't just care about one another for an hour on Sunday morning while you're sitting here. You care about them through the week. You're concerned for one another. You take care of one another. The Lord added to their family because they were about what God called them to do. Ephesians 4 the other part of our 8, so A2, Acts 2, right? Now we're Ephesians 4, E4, all right? You guys tracking with me? It's early on a Sunday morning, I know. Here we go. It says this, Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you have called to the one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and one Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. However, he has given each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. That is why the scriptures say, when he ascended to the heights, he led the crowd of captives and gave gifts to his people. Notice that it says he ascended. This clearly means that Christ also descended to our lowly world. And the same one who descended is the one who ascended higher than all the heavens, so that he might fill the entire universe with himself. 
Now these are the gifts Christ gave the church. Apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work, build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we'll be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. So what do we see? There's a few things here. One, God says be united, right? Be in unity together in the Spirit. Why? Because a divided family can't stand. A divided family can't do anything, right? If you're so busy worrying about, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And we see it happen in the church all the time, right? We've all heard the horrible stories of churches that split over what color carpet they were going to put in the sanctuary. That is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. If you were going to be so irate over the color of the carpet that you're willing to leave a church, I tell you, you probably weren't a part of that family much before that anyway. I love my family so much that I would never leave them because of something ridiculous like that. But it happens. These people leave churches over the style of worship that they decide to play anything. I mean, these are just, you know, ridiculous things. We need to be in unity in the spirit. And then what it says, it says, God gives different gifts to all of us. Some of you are gifted in ways I could never be. Some of you are sitting out there going, I'm so glad he's the one up there speaking and not me because the thought of standing up in front of people and talking is the worst thing in the world. God knows that. He gifted all of us differently. He gave different gifts and talents to each of us to use to help this place grow. And now here's the part where I'm not going to let the pastors off the hook, but I'm going to put a little more pressure on you. And it's okay, it's my last Sunday, I can do that. Because if you don't like it, you don't have to listen to me again. So, Notice it says that he gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers the responsibility to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church. It means that our job is to make sure that you are equipped to go out there and reach people. Not that the pastors are not supposed to be sharing their faith outside the four walls of the church, because we are. But there is a large responsibility on you to reach people out there. So if you come into church and you go, well, gee, it would really be nice to see some more people in here, then invite them. It would be really awesome to see somebody come to faith in Christ, then lead them. I'm going to tell you, it's probably breaking every church mold for the last 30 years. You don't need the pastor to lead your friend to Jesus. You can do it. You don't need a pastor to baptize somebody. Did you know that? I told my daughter once, she was like, I really want to be baptized. I'm like, we can go upstairs in the bathtub and do it right now. You know? You are called to reach people. And if your church is not growing the way you think it should, the responsibility is not on the pastor to make the church grow. The responsibility is on the people in the church to make the church grow. Our job is to make sure that you're equipped to go out and do that. I told you I was going to put some pressure on you, so there you go. And you are called to do that. Guys, you're so called. We are so called to do that. It wouldn't be a Pastor Josh message without talking about reaching the lost, right? That's kind of like the heart. If you know me, that's the heartbeat of who I am. We need to be reaching the lost. So I'm going to tell you, it's great when we get when, you know, when somebody comes to our church and they already have faith. That's wonderful. We're so glad that you're here. 
but the church doesn't grow when a person moves from this church and comes over here, right? Just moving sheep into different pastures. That's all we're doing. How does the church grow? When we go find the sheep that are outside that don't have a shepherd and we bring them in. That's how the church grows. So what are you going to do? And if you say, well, I don't really know that, you know, I don't have an evangelistic call on my life. Yeah, well, you do. And what did Jesus say? What was the last thing Jesus said before he left? Go into all the world and make disciples. Right? And he didn't say, go into all the world, those of you with a really outgoing personality and who are really charismatic and make disciples. It's not what he said. He didn't say, go into all the world, those of you who have a Bible degree and credentials and make disciples. It's not what he said. He didn't say, go into all the world, those of you who are called to be evangelists. No, that's not what he said. He said, go into all the world and make disciples. That was a statement to everyone there, to the church. That was his last statement to the church, was to go into all the world and make disciples. And if I could highlight one thing in there that he said, he said, make disciples, not make converts. Because we've all seen that too, right? Somebody comes to church, they give their, they give their heart to Jesus in a service, and they're here for a couple weeks, and then they, they, they just disappear, and we never see him again. That's a convert, right? You got them to agree in a moment, in an emotional moment, to follow Jesus, but then nobody came alongside them and walked alongside them and taught them what it means to follow Jesus, to serve Jesus, to do this thing. When I was brand new in ministry, I used to ask guys, what do you do all day? As a pastor, what do you do all day? No one could tell me. I still don't know what we do all day. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. People are like, I'm taking my tithe check back now. I just don't know. What no, I'm just kidding. We work. <laughs> it's a hard job. We are called to reach people. We are called to be disciple makers as well as being disciples. We are called to disciple people, and that takes time. That takes energy. That takes sharing meals around a table. Because you know what? People may not want to open up. You sit down with them and put food in front of them, and suddenly they're going to tell you their life story. I don't know. Food is great for that, right? But people take time. Making disciples takes time. It takes, an, it takes a commitment on your part to say, I'm going to walk with this person. I'm going to stay connected to this person. I know they're going to mess up. I'm going to stick with them. I'm going to be there with them. Because that's what we're called to do. We're called to make disciples. We are all to evangelize. being a living witness and a testimony. And I love this, and you've probably heard me teach on this a few times now, but the term witness and testimony are court terminology, right? In a court, they call a witness to give an account of what happened. And what does a witness give? His testimony, right? They call a witness to testify, right? And what do they testify? They give their account of the situation, their account of what happened. So you are called to be a living witness and testimony of what Jesus did in your life, to give your account, your personal testimony, your story of this is who God is in my life. 
And the best story in the Bible, I love this story in the Bible about this, was the blind guy who, when Jesus heals him, and then they try to figure out because he healed on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees are all mad about it, right? And they go to him, and, they go to him, and then they go to his parents, and the parents are afraid they're going to get kicked out of the church, so then they send it back to Jesus. Or they not back to Jesus, they send it back to the kid. And the guy goes, listen, I don't know if he's the son of God or not. All I know is that I was blind, and now I see. That was his witness. That was his testimony. I don't know all the big, crazy, doctrinal, theological questions you're asking me. I don't know whether he's God or not if he heals on the Sabbath. What I know is I was blind, and now I see. And you know that nobody who's not from God can do that. So I'm assuming he's from God. They keep asking him so much. He goes, finally, he goes, do you want to be his disciple too? They get all mad. They kick him out of the church. But I love it. His testimony was simple. So many of you have that testimony in your life, right? I don't know. I don't know all the big, the big theological topics. I don't know. I can't define sanctification for you. What I can tell you is I was broken. I was messed up. My life was terrible. I handed my life over to Jesus, and I have joy, and I have peace. And no, my life may not be perfect, but I am so much happier now. I have so much more joy now. I get to walk in the Spirit. I have faith, and I have a hope for a better tomorrow. Man, we have hope. We have hope the world cannot understand. trying to explain that to my children a few months ago we had to put my wife's dog down and so it we have a lot of questions in our home now about death and what does that look like when a you know when an animal passes away and we're sitting there and we'll say well they just they just cease right there's there's just nothing else and we begin to have conversations and my daughter has these questions and we're talking to her and trying to explain it to her and I said listen there are people who believe that's what happens when we die, right? That's it. And no wonder they're terrified of everything. No wonder COVID scared so many people. They thought if they die, that's it. If that person they love gets sick and dies, that's it. I'll, I'll never see them again. And what do we have as Christians? We have peace and hope that there's, when we both love Jesus, there's no such thing as goodbye. It's only see you later. And if later is heaven, that's okay. But we have hope that the worst thing man could ever do to us is send us to Jesus sooner than maybe we thought we were going to get there. I love that. You, you threaten me with heaven? Okay, go ahead. Threaten me with heaven, please. Let's, just, let's, let's have this conversation. We have hope that they don't understand, and they need living witnesses and testimonies of what that hope is. And I'm going to tell you, if you have that kind of hope, they're going to notice something different about you. They're going to be hung up on every turn of the economy. They're going to be hung up on every turn of what's going on in, in the world politics and in world orders and everything else. They're going to be hung up and, and so stuck on what that is. And you're going to sit there and go, you know what? What will happen will happen, but I know who's on the throne. I know who holds tomorrow, and I know who holds my future. And I have hope that no matter how bad it gets here, before I know it, I'm going to be there with him.
Because we all want to see revival happen, don't we? Yes, we want to see revival. You can, you can amen there. It's okay. Like, that's, yeah, sure, I guess. I mean, maybe. Okay, let's get excited. We want to see revival happen. That was better. All right. We'll, we'll, we'll work on it. You guys can practice when I come back sometime to guest speak. Sometime we'll, we'll, we'll try this again, right? Okay, there we go. So I expect you to be practicing. You know, there's some homework for you. We want to see revival happen. We want to see people come to know God. We want to see the church alive and on fire and all those kinds of things. I'm going to tell you right now, revivals don't just happen because people want them to happen. You can't just come in wishing for revival. God's not a genie, right? And God can't be persuaded by eloquent, eloquent prayers that you think are going to, you know, somehow change his mind. Revivals happen because people pursue intimacy with God. Because knowing God, being in his spirit, being with him is at the forefront of who they are. When we think of revival, we think of the big, you know, we think of mighty moves of God and all those kinds of things, and that's all wonderful, but really at the heart of revival is to revive means to bring back to life, right? Revivals, when revivals come and they give way to awakenings, right, like the great awakenings in our history, those things happened because the church became alive again, because the church pursued intimacy with God and holiness over everything else. Because they wanted, their, their sole goal was, I just want to be with Jesus. I just want to be in his presence. I just want to be with him. I love it. There's a new song out right now that says, God, I just want to be in the room when you move. Right? And then he says, and I'm not leaving until you do. God, I'm just here. I'm here to meet with you, and I'm not leaving until I meet with you. It's that same kind of drive that drove Jacob to wrestle with God all night, right? And to hold on and say, I'm not letting go until you bless me, God. I'm hanging on. Church, do we have that kind of determination? Do we have that kind of drive that says, God, I'm going to pursue intimacy with you. And it's not enough to just say, I want to pursue intimacy with Jesus. Intimacy isn't something you can just say and then you have. Intimacy is something that's crafted. It is something that is done day in and day out. Those of you who are married understand this. When you're first married, you may have a certain level of intimacy, but I'm going to tell you, the longer the years roll on, the more intimate you become, right? My wife and I have been married, we're, it's going to be 12 years in like two weeks. We can look at each other now and we don't have to talk. Sometimes something will happen and we'll just look at each other and I know what the other one's thinking, right? There have been times we've left conversations, I looked at Jennifer and said, I'm so proud of you. And she says, why? And I said, because you didn't say what you were thinking when that person said that thing. Right? And other times when somebody will be talking and Jennifer will look at me and say, don't. Because she knows what I'm thinking and I don't always have the good sense not to say it. So there's an intimacy there. Intimacy with God is not something that's able to just be achieved in a moment. It is something that is crafted over a lifetime. 
It is something that daily we pursue God. Daily we place our faith in him. Daily we strive to, to meet with him, to be with him, to spend time in his presence, to spend time in his word, spend time listening to his voice. That's what intimacy with God is. And that's the thing that is going to lead to revival and awakening in our country. Why? Because we are going to fall in love with Jesus. We are going to fall in love with who he is, and then we're going to become passionate about the things that Jesus is passionate about. And Jesus was all about his father's business, and his father's business was redemption and reconciliation. And man, when that happens, the biggest question you're going to be asking then is, where are we going to put all these people? Right? Because you're going to be so on fire for God. You're going to be telling everybody about him. They're going to be telling you about how chaotic their life is. You're going to be like, well, let me, t- let me tell you about Jesus. Let me introduce you to Jesus. Let me tell you about who this Jesus guy is and what he did for me and what he did in my life. Let me tell you about how your life can be better because you know him. So I'm going to close really simply today and not like an evangelist. This is it. I'm actually closing. Um, I just want to pray for you. I just want to pray for this church. And I'm going to turn it over to Pastor Larry. Yeah, will you bow your heads with me this morning? Lord Jesus, we love you. And Jesus, we are so thankful that you came and you died so that we could be a part of your family. Heavenly Father, thank you for adopting us, for bringing us into your family, for placing your name on us and giving us your spirit. Lord, I pray for this church. Lord, I pray that they would fall so in love with you and that they would develop such an intimacy with you, Holy Spirit, that you would just flow out of them. That analogy in the Bible that their cup runneth over, that their cup runs over, that that would be how it is, God, that they are just so full of your spirit that it just sloshes out as you continue to pour into them and they continue to just let it flow out over them, God, and onto the people around them. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would send revival and awakening to Abundant Life Church. I pray that you would send awakening to the community here in Lakewood, Lord Jesus, that countless numbers of souls would be saved, God, through the work of Abundant Life Church and the other churches in this area. But God, for my family right here, I pray, Lord, that they would really grab a hold of being in your business. And that the greatest job we can ever have is to do your work and to work for you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.